The 11th of July 1927 earthquake, um, often known as the Jericho earthquake because it was originally thought that the epicenter was near Jericho. Actually, it's kind of been recentered um, and probably uh, emanated from a site um, in the northwestern end of the Dead Sea. Um, Analyses after the fact estimate the earthquake at about 6.3 on the Richter scale. The Richter scale, as I will mention later, was not invented in 1927. Um, and it caused uh, widespread damage and a fairly substantial number of deaths um, across the region, um, particularly in Mandate Palestine, also in Mandate Transjordan. Um, there were the, a variety of the kind of um, effects that we associate with an earthquake. So there was what are known as siege waves on the Dead Sea, uh, which are standing waves um, similar to a, a tsunami in effect. Um, and the worst hit places in the earthquake were cities like Nablus, um, Athalt, Amman, Jerusalem, the village of Raina uh, in the Galilee, and the cities of Ramla and Lidda, but the earthquake was felt from Egypt to Lebanon. Um, several thousand houses across the area were uh, destroyed or damaged, um, and there was also, for good reason, um, fear of aftershocks and the results of them. Um, this is a map of the intensity of the earthquake. Um, so if you look, let's see if I can get work. Um, if you look at the center here where I'm pointing with the red, I'm not sure if people online can see this, um, but around Jericho, uh, Jerusalem, and also um, over into Amman and up at uh, Salt, we're looking at what is known as um, a scale of about nine to 10 on the Mercalli scale. And that's a scale which, unlike the Richter, it doesn't measure the power released in the earthquake, it measures the intensity of the actual shaking that takes place and the results of it. So the way that the Macaulay scale operates is to identify, for instance, what happens to houses, what happens to windows or crockery, what people hear or what people feel. And the highest rating on that is, is a 10. Um, so there is considerable damage in some of these cities. Um, the reason that it has this sort of funny pattern on the map is because it's not just about how close you are to the epicenter that governs the, the intensity of the earthquake when people feel it or when buildings or whatever experience it. It's also to do with the geology of the actual areas. Um, so if, for instance, you have soft sand soil it can actually liquefy and then and then houses will collapse from under um whereas if uh the the there is sort of solid rock then um you might have places that are very close to each other um that have very differential amounts of damage and experience things very differently so we're looking at a Macaulay scale of about nine or ten in places like Nablus and Jerusalem um, and about five in southern Lebanon um, and going down uh, into um, the Naqab and the um, sort of parts of the Sinai Peninsula. 
in terms of the research that I'm going to be talking about today, um, I just want to start with some of the underlying kind of ideas that have directed how I've been thinking about what it is that people might have known and thought about this earthquake when they experienced it. So although non-literacy is very high at this point in time, um, more people than could read will have heard the contents of newspapers in places like village um, madafes and things like this. It's We can't assume that because someone can't read, they're not at some level engaged in news and in thinking about um, science and ideas of what's going on um, around them in, in, a, in a way that um, is aware of discourses from across the region and from around the world. It's also possible that what we might call semi-literacy was more common than appreciated. And Hoda Youssef has done some really interesting work with regards to Egypt on this, so that people might have been classed as illiterate or non-literate who actually were able to um, tell some words, say might, be able, might have been able to read a headline, but would have found it difficult to read a full article, this kind of thing. So again, that people might have been engaged more than we often give credit for this period in time um, with uh, sort of broader social and discourses. Um, we also need to pretty much um, abandon <laughs> the sort of old fashioned direct West East ideas of uh, knowledge transfer. Um, and uh, I think Daniel Stoltz, who wrote about um, particularly astronomy in Egypt during the 19th and early 20th centuries, puts it very well in terms of thinking about in strategic engagement, circulations, reactions, and rejections of knowledge um, that people uh, in all sorts of places are engaging with uh, multiple sources of knowledge, of, of, of science in scare quotes, um, and we can't just assume as some of the sort of earlier work on, for instance, the Nachta tends to do, that um, there is just a sort of wholesale transfer of knowledge from West to East. Um, I think it's also really important to remember that um, a lot of the, the Western science in inverted commas at this time, whether it's medicine, whether it's geological sciences like this, um, whether it's astronomy, was still really quite weak in terms of the level of proof and surety that it could actually deliver. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about seismology in a minute, but if we also think, for instance, about medicine, at this point in time, um, however much uh, of a claim to sort of objective truth Western medicine was making, in terms of the number of diseases that it could actually cure, there weren't very many. <laughs> um, uh, and, and certainly uh, the kind of uh, folk or other remedies uh, that people who were despised by Western medicine might have um, used could be at least as, if not more, effective. And I think this kind of thinking, which comes from people like Roy Porter and Hannah Louise Clark, um, is really useful in terms of thinking about um, wider sciences beyond medicine. 
So the state of earthquake science in 1927. Um, as I mentioned, the Richter scale uh, doesn't uh, isn't kind of published until 1934, 1935. Um, there is a search on for a numerical scale of this kind. People want to measure things. They want numbers. They want this idea of an objective truth, an objective number that can tell you what an earthquake is. The Macaulay scale, the one I just talked about, had been around for 20, 25 years. Um, and there were other forms of, um, of intensity scale like it as well. Um, so that kind of thinking about earthquakes had has, uh, has a sort of longer um, resonance. Um, as I mentioned, there is very much a quest for the idea of a scientific or a numerical measure, um, an attempt to move away from what had been the main way of um, kind of recording data about earthquakes, which had been much more or at least perceived as being much more subjective. And that was through doing things like questionnaires. Um, the way that most earthquake scientists, certainly up until the late 19th century worked, was to have um, sometimes in place networks. These existed in the United States and in the uh, Habsburg Empire. So networks of people who were primed at the moment that an earthquake happened to fill in their questionnaire and send it to the scientist who was sort of running this network. Um, but these kind of things were perceived as being too subjective. Um, obviously, one person's description of the noise or the intensity of a shaking might vary. Um, the amount of damage that happens to buildings might vary according to the local stone, the style of architecture, all of these sorts of things. Um, there's also a shift going on um, in the 19th century, really, and so we're, we're kind of um, very much in the sort of second part of it uh, by this point, from seeing earthquakes as isolated catastrophes, acts of God, to part of processes that happen a lot, happen normally, um, a, a kind of greater recognition of the fact that little earthquakes happen very frequently in an awful lot of places, um, and that big earthquakes are just on a sort of spectrum of those rather than being a sort of one-off thing. Um, at this point in time, there are no seismographs in Mandate Palestine. Um, the nearest ones to the epicenter are to the south, sort of southwest at Helwan, south of Cairo, um, at an observatory which was the sort of descendant of one established by Mehmet Ali. And to the north, um, one which I'll be speaking about a lot more later at Kassara in southern Lebanon. Um, but, which didn't work properly on the day, so its objective scientific measuring had to give way to the subjective recording by um, letters and questionnaires to uh, personal networks. Um, there was also one at the American University of Beirut, uh, at the Lee Observatory, um, which apparently never worked very well and had to be decommissioned in the end because um, when uh, somebody built tram tracks near the university, it just kept recording the tram tracks all the time. So they had to abandon having a seismograph at AUB. Um, Jordan set up what I believe was its first um, seismograph, seismographic center 
at uh, UJ at, in 1981. Um, the State of Israel had its first in 1953. So this is kind of in terms of the actual sort of uh, formal observation of earthquakes and the infrastructure of science in the region at this point in time. The mechanics of earthquakes at this point in time are still fairly poorly understood. Um, one of the first things my mum told me about when I got the grant to do this research was about how when she was doing geography at school in the sort of early mid 1960s, um, there was this cutting edge new theory that everyone was really excited about and that was tectonic plates. Um, and, and that is how, generally speaking, earthquakes are accepted as happening nowadays. The movement of plates either um, above and below one another or um, against one another. Um, although one of the sort of mysteries that is still part of earthquake science now is how it is that we get big earthquakes in the middle of plates, because it doesn't really fit with that. Um, so there's still a lot of theorizing going on at this point in time over exactly how earthquakes happen. Is it heat? Is it tension in the Earth's crust? Is it the role of weather or electricity? Um, they're only sort of starting to properly understand the way in which there is a liquid core uh, or a, a, a very solid core. They actually don't know about that yet. And then liquid and then this thin crust that we're bobbing about on. Um, so this is the sort of um, environment in terms of how um, science perceives earthquakes um, in 1927. So in terms of how um, the earthquake is delivered to various audiences in Mandate Palestine, um, in terms of earthquakes generally, not particularly the 1927 one, um, I've been trying to find uh, them in geography textbooks and I haven't yet managed um, or, or indeed in sort of a wider kind of um, history textbooks as well. Um, the, the, the geography textbooks that I've so far seen are much more a matter of sort of human geography, what we'd now call human geography, than of things like geology. Um, there are geological surveys of the region going on, um, and some of them are published in um, what I brief, what I um, abbreviate to JPOS, which is the Journal of the Palestine Oriental Society, which is actually one of the, it's, it's kind of one of the main journals and one of the main outlets for researchers in the region to publish um, it publishes in multiple languages, sort of several different European languages, and Arabic and Hebrew. Um, and these geological surveys, and also the ones that have been carried out by the Mandate government, are very much descriptive of things like the strata of the rocks, um, ages, which of course they're identifying via fossils because there uh, are no uh, chemical means to, to um, or, or, or um, radiation-based means to um, do so at the time. They talk about faults and layering, but they don't really discuss the fact that these are things that are re uh, related to earthquakes and tremors. Um, and a lot of the geological surveying that is going on is quite sort of functional. It's about working out where there's water, where there's oil, where there might be things that you can mine. Um, in terms of autobiographies and memoirs in the period, um, the earthquake often is either not there, or if it's there, it's minor. 
and or the details are wrong. Um, so people see in some cases mix it up with the 1837 earthquake, which is much bigger, was centered on Safad up in the north and killed thousands of people. Um, and I suspect that quite a lot of that is probably down to the fact that an awful lot of memoirs and things um, are written after the Nakba and that that is the sort of focus of people's interest. It's the political questions rather than other things that go on. There are um, exceptions, as I've put here. Um, we've got the Palestinian uh, writer and educator Akram Zwaita, um, uh, Helen Bentwich, whose husband Norman was the um, uh, mandate government's attorney general at the time and Fadwa Tukan, who talks about it particularly because she's really worried about her brother because the roof of his bedroom collapses. Um, there are some religious linkages that people make, but they are um, very few. And there's a reason for that, I think, um, that I will talk about in a minute. So in terms of the, um, the content of some of these writings, there's a variety of different public uh, different articles that mention earthquakes that we can find in the Journal of the Palestine Oriental Society. Um, as I mentioned, there are geological articles. Uh, so down here, um, and that they tend to be very much talking about a status quo, um, about uh, that what what describing what the what they think the geology of Palestine is, rather than talking about things going on with it. Um, there are also <laughs> um, mainly um, Jewish and Christian scholars using terms like diluvial, so they are still talking about the flood um, in terms of how they are perceiving things, because some of the authors for this journal are um, from, especially from things like uh, Christian religious orders. Um, and so they, they, they're still working on a uh, the earth is 5,000 years old sort of um, idea of, uh, of geology. In terms of, um, of how uh, ethnographic and cultural studies talk about the earthquake, um, the main place that we find some of these is in the ethnographies of Taufik Kanan, who is a doctor um and a well-known ethnographer uh in Palestine um, at this point in time and he fairly unequivocally says that disasters like earthquakes floods this kind of thing are seen by ordinary Palestinians by Fellahin particularly as warnings or punishments from God he very much has that kind of um sort of pre-modern people think of disasters as coming from God idea um, which I would slightly like to question. Um, in terms of things that we find in the Palestinian newspapers, um, this first one that I'm going to mention is actually from before the 1927 earthquake. Uh, it's from it's um, it's from a, a, a kind of sort of magazine journal. Um, that's published in Haifa for a few years. It's not terribly long lasting, um, and it's it's. Um, there's there's this one issue which is dated from March April uh, 1926, but I don't think that's when it's actually issued. Um, and the way that it seems to mainly be interested is historical and geographical in a very generalized sort of way. 
Um, it's, it's actually an article which primarily is translated from various other sources, including um, uh, an article by a scholar called Blankenhorn, uh, who writes in German. Um, and it's mainly interested in identifying past quakes and locating them in the history of the region. Um, there, as I said, it's a bit ambiguous as to what happened. So what I think has happened with this issue of the journal, which I think may be the last one, um, is that although it's labelled as being in the spring, it also has this little account with no date in it of an earthquake the description of which fits the June 1926 quake, which would have been felt quite strongly in Haifa. So I think the publishers decide they're interested because of experiencing this in the June and maybe sort of bolt it in to an almost ready copy of the journal, which then comes out with the original dating on it, but actually comes out a while later, um, because all of the, 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 uh, the events and the description of, of the sort of strength and where is affected by this quake um, fits the road quake in 1926 and no others. Um, in terms of where the government is getting its ideas about earthquakes, um, there is a gentleman called Bailey Earthquake Willis. He's American um, and he happens to be in Egypt on the 11th of July, 1927. Um, he's been undertaking a year long trip around the world uh, investigating earthquakes. He's an earthquake scientist. At, the, at this moment, he's sort of, sort of early, mid-career. He ends up very, very senior. Um, and so he leaps on the train, because this, of course, is the days when you can get on a train in Cairo and be in Jerusalem um, within the day. Um, and he sort of travels around a bit and knocks out this um, fairly substantial report of which this is the first page, which he sends in multiple copies to the British administration. Um, if, you, if you're going through the earthquake file in the British National Archives in Kew, there are lots of copies of this. He really wanted them to, um, to read his um, report. Um, he talks about the earthquake science as it is understood at that point in time. Um, he's a bit of a controversial figure because he does um, uh, get in spats with people and has big arguments with various other scientists about uh, causes of earthquakes. But he, he sort of lays out what he thinks has happened with this particular earthquake. Um, he also, as I'm going to mention in a bit, um, not in this so much, but in um, his later publications on this earthquake, does quite a lot of borrowing from a medieval Islamic scholar. Um, he also, however, feeds the kind of racialized ideas that the British, that some of the British officials already have embedded in their heads in the British um, administration in Palestine. Um, because he very much talks about the this idea of traditional and Arab building styles, um, which collapse and kill people, versus uh, modern and Jewish uh, buildings, which don't. Um, that kind of obscures and elides various things. Uh, it ignores, for instance, the fact that actually there are quite a lot of Jews who are 
very badly affected by the earthquake, both Samaritans in Nablus and um, Sephardic Jewish communities in places like Jerusalem. Um, so it very much is about Europeanizing the idea of who is a Jew in Mandate Palestine at this point in time. Um, but it also basically tries to um, kind of put forward an idea that, uh, that it is the indigenous architecture, which is the cause of the deaths. Um, it's also quite interesting that um, the mandatory and Hashemite government on this side of the Jordan come to almost exactly the opposite conclusion about what kills people in terms of what happens in their experience here in Amman, um, which is an interesting kind of little edge to um, thinking about what Bailey Willis has to say. Um, but I think it is also worth noting that this report is translated, um, and I can't remember who by, I'm afraid, if I know who by, for the, um, the journal of the, 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 the sort of main college in Jerusalem, which is the only uh, tertiary higher education in Palestine that is accessible to Palestinian Arabs. Um, so it's kind of the elite school, which the British run. Uh, I think at this point it is headed by Ahmed Sami al-Khalidi. Um, and they're very much being people being trained for the professions or government administration. Some, some then go on to AUB, um, but many of the graduates of it go into things like the civil service. So the ideas in this report we don't know what those people do with the ideas, whether whether they take some take them on board, whether some reject them, but they are certainly ideas that are transferred into the knowledge of um, uh, a certain kind of part of what we might call the sort of professional and administrative ruling classes in Palestine. Um, so potentially people who are training as architects and things like this. Um, when I mentioned uh, that um, Bailey Willis took some of his information from um, medieval Islamic work, this is what I'm talking about. Um, it's from Asayuti. Uh, and um, what he does is uses an English translation of Asayuti's um, text on earthquakes to produce a chronology of earthquakes in the Levant. Now, this has caused chaos in earthquake studies ever since, because he didn't realize they were in history dates, and so has them all 600 years too early. Um, and people were still trying to correct this in the 1980s. Um, but what, um, and Samara Ismir has done, who's at Berkeley or somewhere, one of the Californias, um, has, has analyzed um, what goes on in, in the way in which the, the Sayuti text is kind of transferred into Willis and, and later earthquake knowledge. Um, in terms of, of, of basically stripping out the Islamic theology that is the main point of the original text, um, inserting the usual sort of Orientalist slash biblical um, framing that a lot of Western writers use at this point in time for anything involving the Levant. Um, um, but the, the Sayyidi text is a little bit interesting in terms of the fact that, um, and, 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 and Willis doesn't talk about this at all, but it actually rejects a lot of earlier 
Islamicate scholarship, because um, a lot of ideas about earthquakes in uh, sort of early and medieval um, Islamic writings draw on the ancient Greeks. So they talk about earthquakes largely as being the result of vapors or heat. It's not far off Western science explanations of what causes earthquakes. You know, they connect it to things like uh, hot springs and caves where there are gases that come up and all of this sort of stuff, which we now know is connected to earthquakes and volcanic activity. Um, but he unusually rejects that because he is a theologian who wants to write a theological text. Um, so, but what, but what we can see here is that firstly, there is dialogue going on between a whole range of different sources. And also um, it kind of highlights the fact that there is a substantial Islamic, Islamicate, uh, Arabic, Persian, um, literature on earthquakes as well and that actually if we're looking at it in these sort of somewhat binary terms it's more scientific than certainly anybody in the west was thinking at this at the same times um in terms of reporting of the quake itself obviously the vast majority of that um which i'm not going to bring up now is the uh, is the sort of stuff that you would expect in a newspaper. It is how many people are killed, what's damaged, um, whether or not the government is doing its perceived duty in terms of helping people out. Um, but uh, eight days after the quake, Philistine chooses to occupy a large part of its front page. So this is one of the main newspapers in Palestine at this point in time, and this is its front um, its front page, its front cover, with a, a kind of, well, well, what are well, what are earthquakes? Where do they come from? Um, and they start off with this fairly kind of cutting edge in terms of science, but also um, very much something that would have been familiar to anybody who knew about Islamic writings on the subject. Um, version of what causes earthquakes, looking at things like hot springs and volcanoes, um, and talking about the idea of a liquid center of the earth and earthquakes as being the result of pressure and heat and things within that. Um, they go back citing uh, classical scholars like Lucretius, um, and then carrying on um, into other um, sources of knowledge on earthquakes. Um, they're very much, by the look of it, expecting their readership to be interested in historic and scientific explanations, not anything religious, not anything folkloric, um, or, or it is that the, the editors of this newspaper are wanting to uh, have some kind of pedagogical role in society. Um, but this is the sort of um, kind of fairly typical, it's not that much different from um, the, the article from Asara. Uh, as Zahra before, um, but this is the kind of discourse that we find a lot um, at this point in time. And then finally, the one, the last one of these that I want to mention um, is this little identical thing that pops up in several newspapers. There's these two, um, six days apart, um, but there's a couple, there's several other examples of it that I've come across. Um, and I find this quite interesting because basically it seems to be trying to reassure people not to be scared of earthquakes. There's not going to be any more. And the point is, of course, is that now 
we still can't predict earthquakes and certainly no one could predict earthquakes then. Bailey Willis said that he thought it might be what is known as a relieving earthquake. So one that let that where there's been a buildup of tension and then there's a snap and then there isn't another one for a long time. But nobody had any way of proving it at this point in time. And we don't really have that ability now. Um, so it very much seems that this is something that's possibly a kind of a political or a sort of crowd control measure that the, that the, that the mandate authorities have put out this statement. Um, and I'm kind of interested in the fact that it doesn't appear on the front page of either. It's on page two or page three. And obviously in one case, it's quite a long time after the, the, this statement must have been sent out by the mandate authorities. And I'm kind of, I, I, I wonder if that is about the fact that there's been pressure put on the newspapers to say, you know, we need to calm the population. Uh, we, need to, we need to make people not be afraid, but that the newspapers are thinking that actually these people don't know what they're talking about. And so we're just going to sort of hide it on page three where people might not bother looking at it very much and we don't have to be embarrassed if there then is an earthquake in a week's time. Um, I'm now gonna talk uh, for a little bit about the observatory at Xara that I mentioned earlier. So this is, um, if we're thinking about the Levant region, this is the main place where there is um, a sort of conventional scientific knowledge being produced on earthquakes um, in the region. Um, it's run by Jesuits, it's established before the war, and it's the applied science arm of the Université Saint-Joseph in Beirut. So it's got meteorology and astronomy and geomagnetics and seismology. And as you can see in the uh, lower picture, um, very substantial vineyards, um, which are still in existence. And they make a very nice blanc de l'observatoire in honor of the fact that there used to be an observatory. Um, it is staffed, it's, it's sort of established over a, about five years. It takes a lot of effort to get together. Obviously the kind of equipment needed for a place like this is very expensive. Um, so once it starts running from 1907, um, most of the people staffing it are either Jesuits or they are students from St. Joseph University. Um, some of them are Lebanese. There are also French, Italian, British. There's quite a lot of coming and going. This is an international research station. We have people sort of popping up briefly from all over the world, mainly through Jesuit networks. Jesuits have observatories everywhere. There are entire books on Jesuit observatories. Um, it initially starts out with seismic equipment lent by an international association. Um, it establishes its own set of equipment after World War I because, um, as you'll see in a minute, nothing is usable after the war. Um, it's, it's, at some, it's at some point used as a barrack for Ottoman soldiers and soldiers and equipment, probably a bad idea generally. Um, and the, uh, the uh, observatory closes in the mid-1970s because primarily of, um, firstly, lack of money and secondly, uh, the beginning of the Civil War. Um, they are using, at this point, Mayinka seismographs, which are invented by uh, Karl Mayinka, who is um, uh, at the, he's a German, um, German seismologist. Uh, 
and they use a drum that looks a little bit like this, except that it's probably the reverse colors. It's a smoke drum, basically, um, and it draws lines that wobble. Um, these are all pictures from uh, Xara, which I only found today, so I was very happy indeed. Um, uh, so this is the original one they have. It's 133 kilos. That's what it looks like after the war. Um, and that's the new one they get to replace it. Um, and uh, this, is the, this is basically the model of seismograph that the French use in all their colonial observatories. As I mentioned earlier, there are no observatories in any of the British colonies or mandates um, in the region. Um, the British don't really like spending money on their colonies. Um, and they don't build any kind of facilities like this. The French, however, because they have this attitude, I think, of the colonies being part of France, particularly, of course, the colonies in the Maghreb, um, they, uh, they do, they build quite a lot of um, uh, observatories in their colonies. I'm not necessarily saying this is a good thing, definitely not trying to whitewash French colonialism, um, but they certainly do have quite a few of this kind of seismograph in places like Morocco and Algeria. Now, the um, observatory at Kassara produces a monthly bulletin. It is handwritten and then mimeographed and it sends it out all around the world. It's um, a quite a, quite, um, uh, a production because, of course, it's not just seismographic uh, measurements they're sending out. It's all the meteorology and all of this. Um, um, but for this earthquake in 1927, they produce a special supplement of 25 pages because their seismograph breaks halfway through recording this earthquake. So they don't have full records of, of anything sort of numeric. So what do they do? They revert to the kind of methodology that people had been trying to get away from to some extent in earthquake studies at this point in time, which is questionnaires, letters, they send questionnaires out through the French colonial networks across uh, Syria and Lebanon um, and through their Catholic networks. So to some extent, the bias in this report is, is there a Catholic priest, mission, church, school, orphanage, hospital, whatever, in your town? In that case, you're going to have a good, good, sort of good set of information in, 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 in the report. Um, so I think there's something a little bit interesting going on here in terms of thinking about the different types of measuring and knowledge formation and production around earthquakes that are going on in the region at the time. Um, there is this, and, and this report is fantastically detailed in many ways. Um, and also very importantly, it covers the entire region. As you can see here, it sort of heads it up as Palestine, but it's got bits of Syria, it's got bits of Lebanon, it's got bits of Transjordan. Um, and so it talks in a much broader way. It's effectively, and the way it's structured effectively ignores the mandatory borders because it doesn't organize it by sort of political territory. It organizes it according to where it is hit worst. So it's section one is the places that got hit really badly. 
Section two, yanny. Section three, the ones where there was a bit of a wobble and maybe somebody's cup broke. Um, but it, there is a sort of complete uh, uh, erasure of any sort of political divisions that have been imposed on the region at this point in time by the mandatory system. So a few conclusions. Bang on time. Um, there are a variety of ideas about earthquakes circulating in the Levant in the 1920s, but I think we can see a certain amount of confluence between um, knowledge coming from lots of different sources, whether we attribute that to some extent um, to uh, influences from classical um, scholarship. Um, or other sources. I think there's kind of debates to be had there. Um, there is this idea of Kassara as being sort of the source for information on this earthquake um, in terms of how it is mentioned uh, in, um, uh, in sort of subsequent scholarship. But there is also the fact that, of course, the knowledge that Kassara puts out is very much embedded in the society um, of the time. Uh, people write about the things that happened in their towns according to what they perceive to be most important. Um, people draw on a wide range of sources in, in terms of how they're thinking about earthquakes at this point in time, um, whether it's religious, whether it's folkloric, whether it's classical, um, or whether it's, it's kind of the idea of modern geology and other science. Um, I think educated Palestinians would have known about at least some of the um, Islamic writings uh, that talk about earthquakes. Um, we're talking about people like Ibn Sina. So I don't think those modern explanations would have been at all alien to them. Um, they, I think they would very possibly have had a level of common sense um, identification with them in a way that those kind of explanations didn't have for Europeans when they were first put forward. Um, and religious ideas about disasters as punishment or as warning from the divine um, were just as likely to come from Christian missionaries uh, from Europe or America as they were from local writers um, or, or speakers. Um, and I think that what we can very much see is an active engagement with and interest in developments in seismology and seismological understandings, but with a range of sort of theories and approaches and framings to them. Um, so that modern, in inverted commas or scare quotes, modern ideas um, very much need to be seen as a part of a, of a, of a wider set of knowledge and of discussion um, about what it is that happened on July 11th, 1927. Oh, thank you, air conditioning. <laughs> um, and um, that's me done. Thank you very much. Just before my voice gives out as well. Share the platform <laughs> platform with you. Thank you very much, Sarah. I realize I should have said my name's Carol Palmer and I'm the CBRL director 